It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you have your copies of God's Word, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 as we continue to walk through our text chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We are thankful that last week we studied what true biblical repentance looks like and how baptism ties into that. And we, are, we were blessed to have many people come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior uh, last week including some who have been long-time members of our church. And we celebrate that. And we are excited about those who want to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. And if you made that commitment last week or you want to make that commitment fresh, uh, please just let us know and uh, we'll get you baptized on November 7th. But with all of that going on, we're now going to see what repentant, truly saved community looks like in the early church. And so with all of that going on, we're going to pick up in verse, what verse? 42, all right. And it starts like this. Well, let's pick up in verse 41 so we can cross-pollinate a little bit and then draw that context in. So then after Peter, verse 41, so then after Peter had given his message and said, repent and be baptized... Those who received his word were publicly baptized, 3,000 of them. In that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And as at this time, we will take an offering. No, I'm teasing. Let's move forward, all right? Day by day, continuing in one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were repenting and being saved. Let's ask God's blessing and then we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the awesome honor that it is to gather together as your bride. A bride that you love so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for her. Father, may we be beautiful and chaste in your sight. Lord, there is nothing about me that makes me worthy to do what I'm about to do. I confess my sin. I confess that most of my sin is on purpose. Because there's times when I just love myself the wrong way. I ask that you wash my feet. That you would restore intimate fellowship with you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this room through our desire to obey you. I pray that as a body of believers, you're the evidence of your Holy Spirit indwelling us would be found in our godly character and our desire to honor you. 
Father, give me clear thoughts. Help me to remember what I studied. But above that, I pray that my church family would hear from you. These people belong to you. They are not mine. For your glory and your glory alone. Father, I pray this and I ask this in your son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. So the first church is now roughly around 3,120 people, give or take. And they all get baptized in the city of Jerusalem. I want you to use your imagination. Can you see the trail of water leaving the pools in Jerusalem as thousands after thousands after thousands of masses of people get publicly baptized? As those who truly repent, unidentify with the old way of life, they unidentify with the culture that they knew, and they publicly, at great cost to them, because we know within the Gospels, specifically the Synoptic Gospels, that the Sanhedrin said, if anyone follows Jesus, they were to be excommunicated from the synagogue. And they are in the Mecca of synagogues here, Jerusalem. At great cost to them, they unidentify with their culture and they publicly identify with Jesus Christ. They turn away from the world and towards God. The early church is now off and running. And what we are about to study here is an example of what a healthy church looks like. And by the way, It's not whether or not we fit denominational norms. It's whether or not we fit what God's Word describes. What we are about to study is an example of a healthy church. It is not, by the way, a prescriptive study. It is a descriptive study. Allow me to explain. A prescriptive study tells us that this is what should be done in every situation. A descriptive, describing, um, Descriptive is that this was done in this situation. All right? These passages and acts are not prescriptions on where a church should meet or how large a church should be, as some contend. It is, it is a description of what took place regardless of where they met or what size they were. For example, there is a movement in the America today in the American church, that seeks to deconstruct large churches. And by and large, I mean anything that is larger than would fit in a living room. That all early churches must be, because all early churches were small and were in homes, then that is the way it should be today. When in fact, that simply is not true. Starting from the very beginning, we observe that when the Lord started the church, He kind of started it big. Can I get a witness at all? 3,100, well, even if you just wanted to go to Pentecost, 120 in an upper room, bang, all right? Then 3,000 more. By chapter 4 and 5, it'll be over 5,000 people in one city meeting under the colonnade of Solomon near the temple where all the people would see them. Then, during the week, this large mass of people met in smaller groups for intimate fellowship. My point here, though, is not to advocate for larger churches, all right? But simply to say that both large or small churches 
are found within the New Testament. What we see here is that Luke doesn't prescribe, but describes the first church. He is not prescribing the size or the location. What he is prescribing here are the components that should be found within any size church in order to have a healthy church. It is here that we see the most biblical application of when the church gets too big or conversely, when a church gets too small. You see, there is such a thing on both sides of the scale. When a church is so large that the components found within this passage cannot be effectively cultivated, then the church is too big. If we cannot meet together as a body, if we cannot have fellowship and prayer and the breaking of bread, if we cannot discipline ourselves, Matthew 18, if there isn't spiritual, and the spiritual leadership just goes, the church is too large to cultivate these things, it's too big. Conversely, it is equally true that when a small home church are void of these components, it is then too small. You may say, okay, pastor, what are these things? Well, while there are more than just the four things that we find in here, let me give you an example. Elder, spiritual leadership, church discipline, all right? All those things need to be found within a church regardless of its size. There are four components here in this text that a healthy church needs to have regardless of how big or small it is. And here it is. Number one, they are dedicated to the teaching of God's Word. Number two, there is biblical fellowship. Number three, there is the breaking of bread. And number four, there is prayer. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is not look around and say, you know what, these are really good things. I hope that other person over there is listening to what he has to say or what the passage has to say. I don't want you to look at others. I want you to look inward for a moment and say, am I dedicated to these things? Am I dedicated to the teaching of the scriptures, to biblical fellowship? Oh, we'll be unpacking that a little bit. And the breaking of bread, and what does that mean? And by the way, it means multiple things. And to the prayers. So with that being said, we're going to look at ourselves. Am I doing these things? And so what we're going to do here is now that we have set the table and we have preheated the oven... And we have watched people get saved here at Trinity and want to follow them in baptism, a public repentance. And now that that the oven is preheated and we have set the stage, let's dig in and get some beef brisket here, shall we? Amen? That was a little shout out to some some people on the internet who wrote me and said, let's move forward. I say hello to you on the internet. Let's get some beef brisket. It's funny. Sometimes I wish we could just get rid of the live stream. Can I tell you why? Because I get emails. (laughs) I've had people who have never stepped foot in this church mad at me and sending me emails. I can't tell you how wonderful those are to read. And then I get people who've never stepped foot in this church and are, are thrilled at what they see. And I remind them of the online giving option, all right? No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm not, but I am. I... It's not important, but I think it needs to be said. With all of that being said, how many here want to eat some beef brisket? Amen? Here we go. Verses 42 through 47. 
And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property possessions and were sharing with them all. And anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking of bread and house to house. And they were taking their meals together in gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Repetition is a good teacher. The first thing a church must have in order to thrive, regardless of its size, is continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Quickly here, you have a copy of the apostles' teaching in your lap. I have a copy of the apostles' teaching on this pulpit. The New Testament is a record of the apostles' teaching. Much of the New Testament was written by the apostles or from one who learned from the mouth of the apostles. Now the word continually here is in the imperfect, which literally means it was an ongoing, consistent devotion to it. It wasn't just from time to time as my schedule allowed. It wasn't that, you know, hey, if I got nothing else going or none of my hobbies conflict... It was not sporadic or inconsistent as as life allows, but an unwavering dedication to every time the church met, they were there. And not because of some compulsory guilt trip that if I'm not there, I'm going to get judged, but rather because they were hungry for God's Word. Have you ever been hungry to meet with the body of Christ? Amen? To go, how long till Wednesday? How, how long till Sunday? Where I can, I can eat the word of God with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember a time in, I think it was 2006, buckle up Ozzy, this is about you. When we met in my office, which was at that time a glorified storage room. Do you remember that? It was like eight men and 400 chairs, all right? And we're, I was candidating here at Trinity, and a deacon questioned me, and I think it was you, Ozzy. If I'm wrong, I'm not. You are. Okay? No, I'm, if I'm wrong, please forgive me. I think it was you, because you were a deacon at the time. And you asked me this question. He went something like this. What would you be your strategy for church growth? Well, I was fresh out of Bible college. I had all the answers. So I took a deep breath, and I looked him right in the eye, and I said, I have no idea. By the way, that's always a good place to start, by the way. But I do know this. It's not a building. It's not programs. What I believe is that people are hungry for the truth of God's Word, not a watered-down moral story for everyday life. I think people long to be in community that truly loves each other. I believe that if God's word is being passionately and accurately taught, and that this was a place where, where people truly love one another, this church would grow even if we met in a cave. Amen? Isn't that what we want? To be around people who love us with the gospel? The first church couldn't get enough of each other in the scriptures. Let me say one thing here. One cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit if they are not filled with the, with the Word of God. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is separate from being indwelled, but you cannot be filled and controlled and passionately of love with God if we are not being filled with the Scriptures. Good intentions will never fill your life with the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, let me tell you this. Good intentions will never cause growth in your Christian walk. It's work. It's, it's dedication. It's devotion. Good intentions will only produce a roller coaster of frustration. We must feast on the word of God. And here is why. Here is why. It's very simple. God's word is his communication to us. This is his communication to us. How do we know if we don't know? Scripture is the food by which believers grow, and there is no other food to be found. There is no other food to be found. There are no social supplements to the Word of God. Amen, church? It is the food. The prophet Hosea summarized this well in the Old Testament when he said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The number one thing destroying the church today is not its relevance out there. It's understanding God's will in here. And that will reflect out there. God has, here's what I want to grab here. We must devote ourselves to sound doctrine because this is what God has revealed himself in. But there's a subtle danger here. There's a temptation to make the study of God's word the end goal. Baptists, we are very susceptible to this. The goal of Bible study is not simply to know it. It's not simply just to know it. The, the goal of Bible study is to live it. Let me put it this way, all right? I think it was Wormbrand, one theologian put it this way. It is not enough to be a Bible-believing church. Just grab that for a minute. It is not enough to be a Bible-believing church. As great as that is, and as necessary as it is, we we need to be more than just a Bible-believing church. Here it is. We must be a Bible-living church. The first example of this in the early church, of them living out the Scripture, is found in the words, and to fellowship. And to fellowship. Now, this word fellowship, many of us might breathe out a sigh of relief because I want to tell you what, if there is one obvious thing at Trinity that we do very well at, it is good fellowship. You guys never leave when you're dismissed. I just want to go home, all right? No, I I love enjoying this time with you as well. But if there's one thing we're good at here at Trinity, among others, it is that we have good fellowship. When we dismiss people, A few people leave, you know, those who don't love the Lord. They will leave at that time, all right? And we judge you through the windows, like, look at that! They need to repent, you know? The people shutting down, where's Tim Hopkins? Tim Hopkins, are you in here, brother? Tim Hopkins is, is on security. That's how he gets out of church. Again, needs to repent, all right? Kurt Ellis, are you in here? He's on security. Man. (laughs) Apparently I'm just calling out security time. Luke, you stay after, don't you? Do people leave right away? We have to to flick the lights. And if you stay long enough, you might hear something from Ozzy or someone else like, it's time to go home, folks. We got stuff to do. And that's awesome. That's awesome. Stay. That's great. I'll be gone. You stay. But I want to say it's not enough just to have good fellowship. We must have, here it is, the fellowship. Biblical fellowship. 
The word fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia, which has the root word of commonality. In fact, you see it right there, the word, the word koinonia, kea tu koinonia, is, 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 is explained right there and had all things in common. It means to share or to give something to someone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the same word is used in the giving of money or to contribute goods to someone. But it is not limited to this. It, here's what it means. It means to give of yourself, your time, your efforts, your skill, your love, your resources. Now, is Dan pulling in here or is he on security? Anyone at all? Brother Dan, are you in here? He's in Iowa. He's in Iowa. <laughs> Strike three. Let's just close in a word of prayer, all right? I'm not at the level of nerdedom that Dan Poling is. He's in Iowa. What's he going to do, you know? <laughs> he brought up a great example on Wednesday evening. How many here have ever watched, what was that? Lord of the Rings. Anyone? Lord of the Rings? All right. Who here has never watched that movie? Okay. Well, it's just, you can just do, you, you got your phones. You can do that. All right. There was a time where they created the, What's it called? The Fellowship of the Rings. Okay, you guys are bigger nerds than me, all right? And when they decided that they, need, they had this mission, the church has a mission, they have this mission, and it's to destroy the, the, the ring, the precious, all right? And, and they all get together, and they say, I will help. And this, like, elf guy, what's his name? Okay, whatever, all right? <laughs> he comes, and he, he says, you have my bow! And then another... What's another name? Whatever. <laughs> Says, you have my, my axe. By the way, don't ever Google that, all right? You have my axe. And they're putting them on the table like that, and it's the fellowship of the rings. And they're saying, I bring my gifts, I bring my talents, I bring my abilities, and I set them on the table for everyone to use to accomplish the mission. That's biblical fellowship. Let me ask you a question. When you come to Trinity, what of yours is on the table? Is your name on anything? Because that's what biblical fellowship is. The foundation of biblical fellowship is the giving of yourself away. Hence the words, <laughs> there it is. They began selling their property possessions and were sharing them as all that may have need. Yellow down here, their time, their efforts, their skills, their money, biblical fellowship. You have my axe. Do you walk in here empty-handed? Or worse, you walk in with your skills and you don't offer them at all? By the way, real briefly, this is not evidenced of an early form of socialism or communism. It is voluntarily and only as need arises, it's out of the heart. It is not compulsory of the government. We will unpack this more in the evening when we dig deeper into this passage and the details we don't have time to get in today. In fact, soon the apostles will teach not to share. Huh? They literally will teach not to share resources with lazy, entitled, irresponsible people who refuse to work. 
It is here that we see the apostles were not Democrats or Republicans. Amen? They were children of the living God. By the way, no party, political party, has ownership on our Savior. Oh, that we'd be more passionate about our Savior and His kingdom than we ever would a candidate in this campaign. The point here is biblical fellowship is the giving of yourself to others beyond the relationship itself, beyond the verbal exchange. It is to have a responsibility to community. The Greek word here has a Semitic equivalent. This word is often used to describe... Now, now Paul, you've got to help me on this. The, the mutuality... Did I get it? Of marriage. This word is talking about the partnership within a marriage. A shared activity. Equally, you have my axe, you have my bow, you have my resources, my time, my gifts, my talents. They're on the table. Biblical fellowship comes through giving of ourselves in a almost like a marriage partnership. And, and agree with me if you would, marriage is costly. Can I get a witness at all? What kind of marriage will you have if you, if you re- refuse to give of yourself in that marriage? It's gone. How's fellowship in the church going? Simple question. How do you partner and give of yourself? How do I, in this community, in this community, in this community called Trinity, if this is your home, and you are welcome in this home, How do you serve at the cost of yourself to come to church, to sit, to soak, to leave, to come on time and leave early means you have not participated in church. You've been to a lecture. And a lecture is not church. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible ever envision a life lived apart from sharing our lives sacrificially like a marriage and to one another within community. I often... I've heard people with righteous indignation say the words, I am a member of the universal church. As a reason why they don't have to commit to the local church. I can't tell you how many times I hear this. Well, I don't believe in church membership. I don't believe in fellowship. I don't believe in covenant relationship with other believers in the local assembly because I'm a member of the universal church. That is universally ridiculous. It is a tired excuse. While it is theologically true that all believers are part of the universal church, regardless of your denomination, if you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the universal church. You are in the kingdom of God. Amen, church? That's our church. It's universal. I mean, sometimes I meet people from other denominations. They are part of of the church, a lesser part, yes, but they're part of the church. I'm joking. Well, it is true that all believers are part of the universal church and the kingdom of God. It is biblically disobedient not to belong and serve in its local context. Not a single book of the New Testament was written with the universal church as its primary recipient. All of them were written to the local church in relation to how they were to live their lives together. When the church in Corinth got a letter from Paul, we call Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, 
When that local church got that letter from Paul, no one said, give me a good Jewish name. Give me a good Jewish name. Anyone? I know it almost seems like we're not allowed to say that. But there are, what's that? Reuben. Yes, and that's from a Jewish brother in our midst, all right? Reuben. When Paul sent a letter to Corinthians, the Corinthians didn't get that letter and read it and raise their hand and say, Pastor Reuben, can I have permission to apply this universally but not locally? We would say that's ridiculous. That is tantamount to telling your spouse, universally, I belong to the institution of marriage. You know where I'm going with this? But locally, I'm not committed. Buckle up. Congratulations on knowing a truth applied in disobedience. All members of the universal church, all members of the body of Christ, those who are saved, are to apply the Bible's teaching in their local assemblies, in commitment, in devotion. I want to ask ourselves one question here before, before we go home today. How do I give of myself to others in this assembly today? What did I leave on the table today? Do they have my axe? Do they have my bow? Who did I listen to, pray with, encourage, exhort, get to know? What ministry of the pew did I have with those around me? Who did I give my resources to, my skills to? How do I participate in a community above and beyond the worship time? You see, Christian fellowship is not red punch and cookies. Especially the red punch. Can't have that. How, here, how many years long, all here been at Trinity long enough to know that red punch is tantamount to a cardinal sin? Anyone at all? Punch and cookies is not fellowship. I have no idea where I'm in my notes now. Let me find it. Universal marriage, ask yourself. That's kind of embarrassing. There it is, red punch and cookies. It's a third of the way down on my page and I had it underlined. It is the giving of yourself away. Because here it is. Is that not what Christ did for us? Isn't that our example? Church, here's a question for you. I want you to answer it. Who is the head of the church? Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Here's another question. I want you to answer this. Who is the body of Christ? The church. We are. It is not possible to say with any biblical integrity that we are devoted to Christ and not devoted to his church. They cannot be separated. Any more than the head and body of your spouse can be separated. I want you to go ahead and try this. I want you to say to your spouse or your significant other, I love your faith. But your body repulses me. I am ready to commit myself to your faith but I will not be faithful to your body. Go ahead, do it. All we ask is that you videotape it because we want to experience this. In fact, let's do this right now. Let me see here. Bob Bannister went to high school with you. You have a, a, a lovely and talented wife by the name of Sherry, right? No, it's Kelly. It's Kelly. Bob, I want you to look at your wife and say, I love your face. Go ahead. Aww. 
Now look at her and tell her, your body repulses me. No? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) He won't do it. Let me ask you a question. Don't we do that with our Lord? I'm committed to your face, Lord, to your head. But I will not be faithful to your body. They're inseparable. We see this unpacked in the text. Look at this. The breaking of bread and the breaking of bread from home to home. Now, commentators differ, all right, as to what this is pointing to here. Some say it points to the Lord's table. Others say it's just common table fellowship. When we get together in our homes after corporate worship, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think we need to pick between the two. In fact, I would contend that I see both here. I think the first phrase points to the Lord's Supper. We have it up here. We're going to end our service by the article, the breaking of the bread. All right? Which, which unites the body of Christ. Today we will break bread under the Lord's Supper, communion. By the way, this duty is not optional for the church. It is, it is an ordinance. It's a command, like baptism. In communion, we all meet on the common ground called the foot of the cross. And all discernible differences should melt away. Second, because of this unity, it spills over into our common table fellowship and home to home to home. Because we are united here, we are united out there. Did you hear that, Republican? Did you hear that, Democrat? I was grieved to the heart today, this week when I got a call from a fellow believer who said, can we come to your church? I think there might be a lot of Republicans there. God help us. I said, I hate to break it to you, but there are Democrats in our church as well. Because what unites us is not our politics, but uh, the, the high priest, Jesus Christ. Did we hear that Democrat? Did we hear that Republican? Here's one. Did you hear that vaccinated? Did you hear that unvaccinated? Did you hear that homeschool, public school? Our fellowship is in Jesus Christ, not in our discernible political positions that we create around Him. It is because of the cross we should all be able to say and have common fellowship in each other's homes, which brings us to our last component of what a healthy church should, should look like, whether it is large or whether it is small. These are the prescriptions elements that must be in it. Here it is, prayer. It's an interesting little tidbit here. The English translation of the Greek leaves out a subtle but important detail. So it's going to get deep fast, but I promise the payoff is quick and we're almost done. Let me see. We're, we're, yeah, we're almost done. This gets deep, but the payoff is quick. So I want you to come with me. Let's take this, these words off the page here and we'll bring them up here. In the Greek, it looks like this. Te koinonia, te glasea, tua tes prosuke. Now I want you to see the highlighted circles here. Those are all articles. Te, te, and tes. Tase is just another form of the word tay. 
It means the fellowship, the bread, the prayers. Notice the article before each. Hey, the meaning that, that each is specific in nature. The fellowship as defined in Scripture. Costly giving, you can have my axe. The breaking of bread described here in the Lord's table. The prayers. Now what's interesting here is this is not some random, hey, let's get together and pray for whatever is heavy on our heart. Which, by the way, is noble and should be done. All Cast your cares, your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. This is good and noble, and we should encourage that we pray with one another, what burdens us. But what I want to do is not minimize that, but take that and elevate prayer to something even more meaningful than that. It goes beyond our, here's my prayer request. The article, the, before prayers, means, means this. It points to the prayers that Jesus and the apostles taught them to pray. They had dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The teaching of the apostles is the teaching of Jesus. For example, one of the prayers is the Lord's prayer, or better described, the disciples' prayer. To take the prayer that is taught in scriptures and pray through them. Our Father who art in heaven, then take time glorifying your Father. Your name is high, it's lifted up. There is none like it in all the earth. Your kingdom, oh, that it would come. That your will would fill my life now as I wait for it to be established in your kingdom. Give me my daily bread. Let me forgive those because you have forgiven me. And pray through this. In lieu of the context of one, costly, devoted fellowship. Two, the teaching of the apostles and the scriptures, the New Testament. When you add the word the prayers, it speaks directly to this. When the church gathers together, we should pray over, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? We don't pray over our broken toe. We don't pray, if I could go back 2,000 years, we don't pray for a dying donkey. Or a thatched roof that keeps getting leaky as important as that might be to us, but gather together to pray through, here it is, the prayers they were taught and how to apply the the will of God as revealed in scriptures. Wow. What a novel idea for the church. Let me cut to the chase. The church must remember to pray in and through the prayers from scripture because the local body does not make its decisions based on how we feel. The local body does not make its decisions based on how we feel or the experiences that we have or the intuition of our guts or the desires of our stomachs. We make our decisions by actively submitting ourselves to the Lord's teaching for His glory. You see, and oh, that we might see this here. The question that is ever in front of the church today is not what will people think or or how do I feel? The question that is ever before us is what has God called us to do? What is His glory? Our mission is to promote a Savior, Jesus Christ, not a politician, not a candidate. What does it say about the church today when we work harder for a political candidate in his campaign than we do the person of Jesus Christ and His kingdom? So now let's bring all these words back onto the text and bring this home. 
And we'll end with an amazing point here. I want you to look at the text. Do you see it? Let me introduce what I see by starting with what, most common, what is one of the most common complaints from people who are discontent within the church. Which is, the church does not reach out enough. We are not the hands and the feet of Jesus we should be. And I think there's truth to that. I think there's truth to that, and I can see that truth stuck to my own heart. See, I don't get up here and tell you, hey, look at me. I've arrived at the top of the mountain. If all of you could just get up here and join me, we'd be the perfect church. I'm going to tell you, I'm on the same journey you are. I'm climbing right next to you, and I can show you my, my, my bloody knees and stubbed toes and failures as well. I see this in my own life. But I also think people who have a passion to be relevant outside of the church often ignore, neglect, and destroy the very goal they're after by the way they conduct themselves inside the church. I cannot tell you how many times those who are passionate about outreach, which is good, and it is biblical, and it is right, And they say, we must go, we must seek, agree, yes, amen. But often those who are passionate about outreach have no issue destroying, neglecting, or disparaging the most precious means by which God uses to save the lost, the church. Some of the most destructive and damaging people for the cause of Christ are those who claim evangelism is important while they destroy the very unity within the body of believers they seek to draw people to. And do you see it? Look at the rates. Praising God and having favor with all people. Here's what we must see. When we dedicate our lives to the teaching, let our study just fill those words. When we engage in the fellowship, the costly, marital, here's my acts, here's what I offer, costly fellowship. The teaching, the fellowship, the Lord's Supper, where everything evaporates under, the, under the, the, the foot of the cross. And we are united in Christ. And we are united not in our opinions, but in Him. And when we seek the prayers as taught in Scripture to find the will of God and the direction for our lives rather than the filling of our stomachs, The natural outcome of these is a dynamic, powerful, unified, local body of believers whose behavior matches their belief. There is an important connection between community life inside the church and the impact we have in the community outside the church. Let me say that again. I'm almost done. Don't drift away. Carpe carpe diem sees this day and carpe minute sees these minutes. There is a huge connection how we get along to the impact that we have with those outside of this church. Hence the words, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now there's no mention of evangelism here. Yet, look at the evangelism happening. And how did it happen? Was it a program? Was it the squeaky wheel being loud enough that we finally oil it even though it divides the body? No. The most powerful evangelism 
is a God-loving church. Life as a church is an essential part of our visible testimony. Why would anyone want to join the kingdom of God when those inside of it see no value in living it? Oh, here it is, church. Our pulpit preaching must be equally matched by our church living. We cannot proclaim God's love and faithfulness when we worship as a, when we worship as a church that, and do neither. Tell me, what witness will we have? What truth will we hold out? If we are a church that says we believe in a Bible, we do not study. In a fellowship that costs us nothing. In the power of prayer, we do not practice. In a Lord's table that does not unify. Oh, my friends, if you want to have a powerful witness to those who do not believe outside of the church, then we must start by showing them the impact of Jesus has inside the church. For the strongest witness we can have about the transforming power of Jesus Christ is to be a people that has actually been transformed in Him. For, for we will have no impact on people about our living Lord if we still look like the living dead. You see, nothing complements the work of God more in drawing people to salvation than a church that loves like God, that fellowships like God, that prays like God, and gives like God. You see, true evangelism begins with a healthy church. What are you going to invite them to? Can I ask you a simple question? Have you said to Jesus, I love your face, but not your body? Let us remember that repentance is the complete reorientation of our life from the world to God. My friends, may we be known not for how large or how small we are, but for our dedication to the teaching, the costly fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the purifying unity of the Lord's table. Everything rises and falls on these four things. Let us not just be a Bible-believing church, but a Bible-believing church. And our homework today is this. Do not run out. Invest in costly, life-giving fellowship. Put your axe and your bow and your tools and your skill on the table. And decide how you will give up your life for this body the same way Christ gave up his life for yours. Tonight, we're going to dig. There's so much here. We haven't even touched on much of it. We're going to dig it a little deeper. We're going to talk about it together. I invite you to come back. But right now, I invite you to bow bow your heads. As we prepare for the Lord's, the tay, the Lord's table where all of our discernible differences evaporate in the heat of what we share in common, the cross of Jesus Christ. Is there anyone in this room you have broken fellowship with? Confess that and go make it right. In the fellowship of the church, there's a giant table in the middle of it and everyone's laid their fellowship tools and skills on it. It, Have you put anything on that table? 
other than your existence. Are you engaged in costly fellowship? Lord, we thank you as the deacons come. Lord, we thank you for your body and your bread and your your blood. We pray that this would unify us as we remember what you've done for us, a beautiful reminder of what we are to do for one another. So, Father, we pray these things and we ask these things in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.